Thank you, gentlemen. Let's just continue that refrain and worship as we take our copy of God's Word now. Take it, please, and let's turn to Romans 3. Romans 3. That is our study here at Westmount that we are in the middle of, and we are in the middle of the third chapter of this book. Romans chapter 3. Again, a warm welcome. I echo Barris, a warm welcome to you if you're visiting with us uh, and you don't have a copy of God's Word, you'll see one in the front, the racks in front of you. Please take that, follow along with us, Romans 3. We opened this chapter last week, Romans 3, with a look specifically, and you can look at it now, verses 1 to 8. And again, we targeted, as the verses did, the righteousness of God, and not just the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God upheld, upheld despite nationality, individual sin, or human reason. In spite of those things, we saw the righteousness of God. Of God. That's where this chapter began. And this is precisely God's righteousness, recall, which is set against something. It's God's righteousness set against man's unrighteousness. And there's a variety of ways the text has been doing that, these opening chapters. Of course, you recall blatant unrighteousness, blatant unrighteousness, deliberate truth suppression that we studied in chapter one. Do you recall that? We looked at moral unrighteousness, the moralists, remember? Moral claims, but no moral engine. We studied that in chapter two. And then there was Jewish unrighteousness, Paul building to this argument, holding up law, all the while breaking law, teaching law, yet violating law. Hence, the Jew in view here took us into chapter three. So yes, suppressing the truth doesn't make truth go away, right? Morality does not absolve you from God's judgment. And group identity, whether Jew or Christian, does not provide judgment immunity. That's what we've looked at. We've looked at all of that here to open this study in the book of Romans. Paul in fact, has walked us through all manner of unrighteousness, all manner of it, as he builds a contrast here. And again, we've been saying this as we walk through Romans, and it's imperative that we do this to study this rich book. We just keep tracking with Paul's argument as he's going through, and that's what he's doing. He's building a contrast in these opening chapters. He's showing us the need. He's showing us the flagrant the forked and the false versions, we could put it that way, of righteousness that we present before God. All manner of our unrighteousness. Now, as we continue to follow his argument, we'll see him cap it. He's just going to put a capstone here in verses 9 through 20. This, as we will see, beloved, is the antithesis of the righteousness of God. If we haven't caught it to this point, we certainly will in this passage. This, as we'll see this morning, is the unrighteousness of man, fully presented. This passage, in fact, will answer the most pressing questions of our day. And I want you to think with me for a moment. You have pressing questions today. And they're the pressing questions that many people have today. Why is there so much evil in the world? I know you've asked that. Why is there so much evil in the world? Oppression? Religion? Privilege? You've heard that. What is mankind's great problem? This is maybe a question. What is the great problem of mankind? Poverty. The childhood prayer. Climate change. It's the great problem. War. Proposals are endless. But none of them are God's answer, right? None of them. They're all opinion. The passage before us will provide the answer. Again, we say this, how often at Westmount? The crystal clarity of God's word. Like a tall, cold glass of water in the desert. That's what the word of God is today in the days we live in. And beloved, the diagnosis on mankind resounds in the passage before you. Brothers, sisters, it is unmistakable. You can't miss this. Can't get out from under it. 
To begin with then, let's consider this passage replete with answer, starting in verse 9 down to verse 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged it all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Our Lord, we take these words that we would admit to you. Even first, second, third reads, they arrest us with the truth before them. So Lord, we plead before you this morning as we endeavor to study this text. That you would open our eyes to see. Give us hearts to receive, and then hands and feet and our our whole body to live out the truth within them. God, we pray that you would enable us to hear from you today and you alone. In Christ's name, amen. What is wrong with people? What's wrong with people? It says here, look at it with me. The problem is that none is righteous. No, not one. That's the problem. Why all the evil in the world? Look with me at the text. Look with me at God's word. No one does good. Not even one. This is the divine diagnosis of mankind. And it's not someone's opinion, beloved. Can we press that this morning? Is this not an opinion presented? You didn't open up a feed or a newspaper page or hear it at the water cooler. This is from God Almighty. This is the the problem of mankind. Some of you know that Team Belgrave likes board games. We enjoy that as a family. We really enjoy that. And can get competitive in our home. And sometimes there's a discrepancy about rules. This happens more than you would think, right? It should be this. Yes, I know. Guilty. Guilty. Why this? What's that? Well, one particular game we played that we love, and we were just learning it. That's key. And we wondered about a particular rule in the game. And as this happens in the Belgrave home, you've got to go to Google. Figure out, right? Some of these games get pretty complex. Well, we went to Google. And of course, as we're doing it, everyone at the table's got an opinion. Right? My sons have one. Carrie and I have an opinion. This is how it should be. Shockingly, it's always the person that benefits from it that's pining, right, for the the rule. That's what we always do. But anyway, all to say, we all have had our moments. This particular time, we found the answer. And it wasn't on a forum. It wasn't on one of those board game forums. It was from the game designer. How do you think we played the game after that? The right way. It shut everyone up. Because designer had spoken. Do you see the connection? When designer speaks, you listen, you obey, and by the way, it made the game a whole lot better. It's one of our favorite games to play. Similarly, many propose their opinions with what's wrong with mankind. And you know what, beloved? When you open up and listen to the world, it sounds good. And we're going to cover a lot of them today because we must. Everyone I'll tell you what's wrong with man. Hear from me. This is what's wrong with people. And it sounds good. Lots of opinions were flooded with man's opinions. Yet all of those postulations, definitions, claims, as high and lofty and as wonderful as they sound, must be discarded and listen quickly against the clear testimony of the one who created And knows all of his creation. I think you can agree with that. 
The creator has spoken. Designer has come down and said, this is truth. And presented here in this text, the diagnosis of mankind. Yes, the diagnosis of mankind. This is man's problem. And that diagnosis in capstone is given right here in the passage before us. It is the unrighteousness of man. Contained here within a chapter, within a section that is progressively building to a presentation of the righteousness of God. And here it is. We said this downstairs, right? Those of you that are in class, you can't understand the good, the righteous, and true if you don't understand the bad, the unrighteous, and the false, right? You can't understand it. It needs to be. Paul, of course, given inspired words, knows that as he builds the argument here. To this Roman church, this is saying, you, I'm going to tell you about the gospel of God and the righteousness of God, but to understand it, you need to understand this component that makes the righteousness of God necessary for you. Because we will never comprehend or grasp the righteousness of God if we do not fully, totally, and completely come to terms with the unrighteousness of man. And that is, beloved, is this not true? Coming to terms with our unrighteousness is a massive battle, isn't it? Don't tell me I'm bad to the core. Don't you dare tell me that. I can't accept that man is wicked. We just cannot accept what God says about us. Thus, let us consider this now, Westmount, in front of us, as given by God. Our first point, universal unrighteousness, universal Unrighteousness. Last week, we observed a number of protest questions. Do you remember those? In the first eight verses, protest questions, many pertaining to Jewish advantage. Well, here Paul anticipates one more. He's not done. He's got one more after affirming, verse 2, that indeed the Jew has much advantage. Remember that? Entrusted originally with God's word. So much value. That was his argument. We looked at that last week. After that, yet a value that doesn't nullify Jewish subjection to God's righteous standard. In other words, yes, they had advantage in knowing the standard, but it doesn't absolve them from being held to that standard. After affirming that Jewish advantage while upholding the righteousness of God, the protesting Jew watching their false security covering, you can see this dissolve, they're getting desperate now, my Jewish badge is starting to come undone. Someone's pulled a thread and is starting to disappear. Such a Jew has one last cry, and it's the well-known, not just Jewish cry, but human cry of self-pity when left exposed. Well, what then, Paul? What's left? Are we Jews really any better off? What of it? What's the advantage? Good question. And Paul picks this moment to move from national advantage, as we've seen, to individual ailment. He returns now to the main point that's been building, and this is the, the moment. And it's this, that Gentile morality or Jewish law, as much as they indicate something or even give advantage in some way, like it does with the Jew, they do not in and of themselves make one right with God. Just because you know law doesn't make you right with God. So no Jew, verse 9, you're not better off, verse 10, as individuals, as peoples. Paul goes on to say, for we have already charged that all peoples, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All persons under sin. In other words, you have received the words of God first, and that is an advantage, to receive law, receive the words of God first. But that original reception can do nothing for your corporate state with humanity under sin. It can do nothing for that. And that location is one that you share again with everyone, Jew and non-Jew. You share that position. That truth, church, is, of course, for us well this morning, well and alive Look at verse 9, both Jews and Greeks, that is Paul, you and me and all of us, look at it, under sin. In that expression we consider that there's none left out. This is universal unrighteousness stated clearly. All humanity is under sin. Now, 
We have to pause for a moment before we move on and consider that term. Look at it, verse 9. Under sin. Very important. It is exactly, as you look at that term, if we were to unpack it, it's exactly as it sounds, right? The picture. All mankind located in a position of subjection to sin. They're under it. Do you see that? It has, sin has lordship over creation in that sense. Yes, this is enslavement. This is, here's the real sense of the language. There's no getting out from under language right here. You can't get out from under it. You're under sin. And Paul will return to this idea repeatedly in this letter, especially when we get to chapters 5, 6, and 7. That's where he really unfurls this aspect of the argument. In fact, in 521, just to give us a sense, he describes man's pre-conversion state, and listen to the language he uses, as sin reigning in one's body. See the lordship there? Sin reigns in one's body. If you were to go to chapter 6, verse 17, Paul will describe humanity's default, and here it is, as being slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. In fact, in chapter 6, the whole point he is making is that we are, corporate humanity, right, in this original state, helplessly obedient to sin. So not just under it, we're just completely helpless to it. Completely helpless to it. Now, we'll have more to say there when we get to 5, 6, and 7. But for now, we note that this is also New Testament teaching. Paul is just not unearthed something new here in Romans. This is also New Testament teaching. In the letter to the Galatians, and we're going to be returning to Galatians more and more in our study in Romans because there's a lot of overlap. Paul says, Galatians 4, 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved, hear the language, To those that by nature are not gods. That is slavery to ungodliness, slavery to sin. To the church in Ephesus, Paul says of their pre-conversion location, listen to this, and you know this passage, familiar with it, Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is quite an indictment. But again, this is the truth. This is the diagnosis of mankind in his original state, certainly pre-Christ state, but we'll have more to say on that next week. The same default Natural, helpless language here, right? Natural, helpless language. Mankind in bondage to sin. Church in Rome, church in Ephesus, hearing the same thing. Titus, the book of Titus, chapter 3, verse 3 says, of man's pre-salvation state, listen to the language, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. You see that? Same idea. Consistent in the New Testament. That is mankind under sin. In other words, there's no getting out from under it. There's nothing you can do to get out from the lordship of sin in your natural state. That's the teaching of Romans, the teaching of the New Testament. However, it's also the clear teaching of the Old Testament, isn't it? Tyler read for us Psalm 14 this morning. That's just one of the references we're now going to see as we walk through the rest of this passage. And your cue, look at verse 10, to begin verse 10. It says what? As it is written. That's the common, when you see as it is written, the common grammatical cue that Paul is about to turn left. Turn left. We know that term well now at Westmount. And that means to go to the Old Testament. That's your cue that Paul is about to go to the Old Testament when you see that. And yes, Paul refers to the Old Testament which would have been key teaching for the Jew. The Jew knew their Old Testament. And what we need to notice in the verses that follow, this is now 10 right through to 18, if you look at it in survey, is that Paul enters into an extended look at the Old Testament to present and confirm this point. He's going to string together some Old Testament passages to prove his point. Right? He's not just going to dip into one. He's going to show a litany of them right through. Look at it to verse 18. Man is under sin universally, as we'll see later, totally. And to prove that, Paul 
does not go to the Jewish law book. This is what we have to observe. He doesn't go to the Pentateuch. He could have, in a sense, but he doesn't go to the Pentateuch. He doesn't go to the Jewish law book. That speaks for itself in one sense. Why is law even needed in the first place, right? Because of lawlessness. Well, to go there, the Jew would say, well, yes, and the law shows how righteous we are because we were given law, right? We, of all people, are lawful, the Jew could have said, and they would point to the law and boast, that is how we are not like the nations. That's how God set us apart. Paul maybe envisions that, that the Jew would go there. So if he goes to the Pentateuch, they could say that. But if they did that, even if he did go there, they'd be missing the point saying that. As many Jews, by the way, still miss the point. Law proved, listen, if law does one thing, law proves they still need to be instructed on what to do. Is that not true? Law doesn't prove righteousness, as we learn elsewhere in the New Testament. Law, law demonstrates unrighteousness. That's the point of law. Instead, then, of going to the Jewish law book, Paul goes to the Jewish prayer book. That's what he's going to do. He gives an extended string, as I mentioned, of Old Testament references primarily from the Psalms. Primarily from the Psalms. You're going to see a reference in Isaiah in there, and we're going to come back to that in a moment, which is an important, timely reference, but... Most of these are from the Psalms. And it's important to note this because what Paul does here is demonstrate that the universal reality of unrighteousness is found in the very songs Jew of the soul. See that? In the very heart cries of the soul Jew, you're going to see this universal unrighteousness. The psalmist does not turn to the letter of the law, but the testimony of the heart. Said another way, the psalmist surveys the evidence and gives observation. And the first testimony, the first psalm reference is found in verse 10. Look at it. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. A couple of initial observations on those verses before we comment on the specific psalms that are in view. So let's do this. First, and this is most evident, just look at 10, 11, and 12. Do you see the emphasis in these verses? You can't miss it, right? You can't miss it. At least seven different ways to state universal unrighteousness. Not one, no one, not even one. I mean, it goes on. Plainly here, God's word is telling us that there is zero exceptions here. Do we see that? There's no exceptions. No one can put their hand up and say, but, no, none. That's one. Second, with no exceptions then, look at what the indictment is. What is it? That all, universally, this is the indictment, they do not do what? Let's look. Verse 10. There's no righteousness. No one is righteous. Verse 11, no one understands and no one seeks for God. Verse 12, no one does good. Think with me. Imagine one more protest. There's always one in the classroom, right? Okay, well, I know a guy who knows a guy, right? And I mean, he's really good. You're really good. If you knew what he did, I mean, he knows the Bible inside out and he's a really good guy. And what does God's word say to that? Verse 12, no one does good. Well, what about that guy? Not even one. Beloved, so we are clear and crystal clear in reading God's word rightly together. Is there anyone that is righteous? Is there anyone that seeks God? Is there any that does good? No. That's what God's word says. No, not one, not even one. That is unrighteousness stated airtight. This is universal unrighteousness. No human being falls outside of this indictment. There's no exceptions. Now, saying that, we need to make one final comment on this reference. These verses, 10 to 12, are taken from, actually, not only just Psalm 14. Some of you know it's an almost exact imprint of Psalm 53. Well, it seems to be the exact same thing. A few minor, minor things, but they're almost exactly the same. Both these psalms are of a Jew looking out on the nations, looking out on the godless. This is a Jew looking at the wicked out there saying, though, so these words are given three different times in Scripture. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Romans 3. Do you think it's important? 
Three times in Scripture, universal unrighteousness is given to us. They make clear that there's absolutely no nation, the citizen of that nation, that does good. Well, that's fine, but if you've been tracking with Paul, you might naturally say, well, what of the Jew then? That's the Jew looking out. What of the Jew? This, in fact, proves what Paul's been dismantling. Paul, why would you go to a psalm that seems to exempt the Jew? Isn't your point, Paul, that they are equally under sin like the other nations? I'm thinking actually betrays our own protest and shows how we're reasoning through even arguments like this. Yes, that is precisely the point, but in fact, Paul has just done what in Romans? He's proven that point of the Jew, has he not? In fact, his most extended sequence is dismantling Jewish righteousness. He's done that already, thoroughly. In fact, one imagines if he wanted to go to the Pentateuch, he could show he just simply needs to go to Exodus, where you have law and law breaking very clearly right up against each other. He could have done that, but he didn't because he doesn't need to. Remember from 2.12 to 3.8, the point was that the Jew is just as unrighteous. Recall, no different to the Gentile. In fact, his argument, specifically at the end of 2, is that the Jew is worse because they know the law, they teach the law, and they what? They break it. So he's already done that. Paul already has laid the groundwork for Jewish unrighteousness. And here in verses 10 to 12, he doesn't need to prove that again. He's building an argument. In fact, what he's doing, he's only adding to it here. Adding the Jew in with all mankind, with all nations. And that's why Paul uses Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 here. It's an indictment against the ancient Jew who used to look in the nations and said what? They got their indexes out. They're wicked. They're trouble. They're sinful. The problem is them. So eerily familiar. And God's word turns around and says, you too, right? God's word, that's what God's word says. Well, you are unrighteous. That's what's going on here. You too, the text says. Both, look at verse 9. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. That's the covering of these references. As it is written, thus all mankind is unrighteous. And further, we know he's adding because when we keep reading hermeneutical toolbox, keep the context, we'll see Paul interweave a passage from the prophets. We already mentioned it in Isaiah that is directly to the nation of Israel. So they're not escaping this either. All of this to say at this point in the argument, Paul has clearly classed all of humanity into one big group. Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. The text says, are you a human being? This is relevant to you. If you're a human being, it's relevant to you. And if so, if you're a human being, you are guilty. That's the point. There's none that is righteous. No, not one. Now, before we leave universal unrighteousness, we need to make one more observation by way of application. And I think for some of you, this is the natural application, I pray. As you've been reading the text, maybe it's in the back of your mind. This is kind of the application that says, well, if this is true, then this. And this. And this. And this. And this is true. So let's... Let's consider that and cast light on it. What indeed is true? What's the obvious implication here? You realize, church, that once again, this is not just a Jewish oversight. Universal unrighteousness is not just a Jewish problem. It's not just the Jew that misses their own unrighteousness. In other words, it's not just the Jews that think sin is an other people problem, right? This is no surprise. This is a monstrous mindset of humanity proper. In fact, I can't even overstate it. I wanted to overstate it, but I can't overstate it. It's monstrous how bad this problem is today. It's everywhere. We are veterans. No cross that. We are experts at misdiagnosing the problem of humanity. His problem is his neighborhood, his friends, his upbringing. Her problem is her past, her broken relationships, her self-esteem. Have you heard that? I have an addictive personality. I had a rough upbringing. I have a disorder. I have a condition. I was just made this way. Call it anything 
just don't you dare call it sin. Right? We slap this thinking on everything. We are collective victims, not personal sinners. We have absolutely lost. Hear the text. We have lost our sense of personal responsibility and personal sin. It's vanished. No one takes account for anything anymore. You know why? Because it's someone else's problem. Today, listen, even in the church, and I want to be clear about this, to think about this before I said it. Even in the church, we are practicing atheists. Yes. What does that mean? We're practicing atheists because often we function as if sin has no part in our lives and hence we give account to no one. That's what an atheist does. We accuse the atheist of operating as if there is no God. Well, when we don't call sin what it is, we are no different to the atheist. Because we're saying then we give account for nothing. No, all the text says, the text, all are unrighteous. It's universal. Next we move on. Universal unrighteousness to total unrighteousness. Let's continue in this string going to read the next set from 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In this section, Paul continues to reference the Psalms. You see Psalm 5, 36, Psalm 10, Psalm 140, all of that's here in the mix. However, as noted, he also in this section, he's going to dip into the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 59, 7 to 8, to make sure that's there too. Why? Remember, because the wicked against Israel are also in view, right? The wicked in Israel, not just the Psalms looking out at the nations, but the prophet Isaiah indicting the nation of Israel as well. So here, as the argument develops, there's no doubt now. There is absolutely no doubt who is in view, all humanity. Now, what is being demonstrated about all humanity here is this, total unrighteousness. That means they're totally wicked from head to toe. You see the picture in those verses? From head to toe, literally. In fact, on that, consider, look at the verses, the variety of body parts expressed in this section. If you were to count them, you'd come up with six. Mouth. Lips, tongue, throat, feet, eyes. By the way, not an exhaustive list, but the point of that is that it's representative of the human composition. In other words, everything. The Word of God will show us that here. There's not one corner of the human soul, not one nook of the human composition, body or soul, that's not stained with unrighteousness. That's the point here of this sweep. Now, the fact that human beings are totally unrighteous does not mean that they are utterly unrighteous, right? What does that mean? We are not all as utterly bad as we could be, right? We all have varying degrees of working out the work of the law in our hearts, chapter 2, 15. But we're not unrighteous utterly all the time. All that to say, do not let the perceived decency of many human beings, especially in so-called civilized cultures, distract from this theological reality. I was thinking of our brother at the back who goes out and serves and protects us. What did he remind us? Do not let the homes fool you because when you open the door, depravity spills out. Don't be fooled by the white picket fence. And listen, not even just in that rectangular neighborhood downtown. In our homes, don't be fooled. We're really good at polished windows. Really, really good. This is total unrighteousness that affects every part of the human person. Paul from the Old Testament will show us that now. First, notice where it's seen the most. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Vivid. The throat, look at it, an open grave. In other words, the stench of death resides there. That's the idea where our very words are formed, right in the throat, where they're given thrust and volume, 
at the epicenter of sound and communication from us, the throat that fuels the tongue to utter words of deception, as such, causing lips of venom. A picture of depravity culminates. Look at verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Lots of emphasis, by the way, on the mouth and tongue and lips here, right? You might say as you're reading here, why? Why the emphasis on that organ? Well, I think we know this. This is the instrument where we see unrighteousness most manifested. If there ever was a domain for the civilized person to sin the most, it's with their mouth. It's with their mouth. And Jesus taught us this. And it's not just a mouth issue, is it? In Luke 6.45, he said, Out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. In other words, the mouth is only communicating what is going on in here, right? And in Mark, Christ also taught what resides in our heart. Again, fight as we might. He said this, Jesus said, What comes out of a person, not what's around them, not neighborhood, not other people, not circumstance, right? Nothing like that. What comes out of a person is what defiles him, says Jesus. Verse 21, Mark 7. For from within the person, out of the heart of man, come what? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And thus, as Jesus says, they defile a person. Defilement is not another people thing. It's not a conditional thing. It's not a circumstantial thing. Defilement actually, says Jesus, is within, comes from within. All the unrighteousness that is spread all throughout our body, living inside us, comes up and is brought up to flow out of our mouth. Unrighteousness spilling out like an erupting volcano. The pressure can't be contained. It's just too much. How often do you hear people say, well, you made me do that right? I just couldn't help myself. Well, what they're missing is whatever came out had to be in somewhere, right? All circumstances did was reveal it. This is what Jesus teaches us. As such, our words then reveal that our hearts, our soul cavities here are just replete with pollution. Our intentions, our reflexes, all of it, our our lips simply then give a grand testimony That's all our lips are doing. Our lips are like a window into the soul to say, that's what's going on in here. In verse 15, we read that our movements too, look at this. Paul moves through the human composition. Our movements, feet designed for evil. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. Again, by nature, this is how we plan our steps, right? The natural man plans his steps according to evil navigation. Is that not true? Naturally, that's what we do. We have an evil GPS. We have evil intentions. That's what we do. Hence, the idea of bloodshed there. Hence, look at the result. Our path is filled, no surprise, with ruin and misery because we're bent on doing things our way, not God's. Verse 16. Westman, this text tells us, I mean, I hardly need to ask, is this not an apt description of most lives today? Is this not true? Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the treacherous is their ruin. In other words, they're the author of their own destruction. Blame other people that they may want to do, but it's their own destruction. That's Romans 1, left to themselves. Listen, left to themselves, life is awful, isn't it? Left to yourself, life is awful. Look, the text says, verse 15, our legs hurry us to this kind of life by default. Total unrighteousness teaches us that we are the architects of our own misery. And the status indictment is that most times we don't even see it, do we? We don't. Finally, in this sweep, look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a statement of fact. I mean... In a sense, I think you can understand, I could have preached a whole sermon on that one verse, right? Do you see it? There is no fear of God in their eyes. Talk about refreshing clarity. The eyes, consider the unrighteousness that consumes our vision. 
Our eyes are filled with fear, aren't they? That's one thing we need to say first. Our eyes are filled with fear, aren't they? It's not a question that I'm fearless. All that machismo with people, I'm fearless. No, every eye, like every heart worships something, every eye is filled with fear. Mark it. Every eye looks at fear and is filled with it. But for humanity, it's the wrong fear. Is that not true? In our total unrighteousness, we fear man. We fear sickness. And of course, what do we know more than ever after three years? We fear death. Those fears, beloved, fears drive your behavior, right? Fear drives your behavior. Yes, fear, please hear this, is a controlling force. Whatever you fear governs everything you do. Fear causes us to lie. Fear causes us to panic. Fear causes us to compromise. Fear causes us not just to disobey Scripture, but as we have seen, not just three years, for the past hundred years. Fear causes us to want to rewrite Scripture. Fear. All that and more the product of wrong fear. All through total unrighteousness. This is the true condition of man. Mark it. Now we're really getting to the heart. See what Paul does here. This is man's problem because fearing everything else but God causes you to sin in abundance, right? And always making excuses for it. The true condition of man, all mankind, the true illness is no fear of God in their eyes. Much more I could say, but I must digress. That is total unrighteousness. One more in the final two verses here. We've looked at universal and total unrighteousness. Now let's look at works unrighteousness. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that, purpose, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Stop there. To close this portion of the argument, Paul returns to the law here and those under the law. And I want you to look at that expression, under the law. We just read a few verses earlier, verse 9 of those under sin. Same grammatical construction here. So there's those under sin and then those under the law. Same idea. Back in verse 9, those under sin were who? Both Jews and Greeks, right? All mankind. So let's not lose Paul again in the argument here. Is he simply returning to land this just with the Jew? Is it only that law in view? No. We know that from context, and we know that because we're tracking with him. First of all, look at the second part of the verse. It says what of those under the law? This is really helpful, that they are under the law so that every unrighteous mouth may be stopped and what? The whole world, there's your audience, the whole world thus may be held accountable to God. So the focus here is exactly what it was in verse 9, both Jew and Greek, the whole world, not just Jew, held accountable to God under law. You would say, well, wait a minute, that means because the law was something to the Jew. Yes, but remember Paul taught the law was something else to the Gentile. Look back at the beginning of chapter 2. The Gentile as well, remember, he, she too, had law, work of the law written on their heart. This is a moral law. Like the Jew with the law, the Mosaic law, the Gentile too under and held account to law. Look at chapter 2. Let's revisit this so we don't lose it. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, like the Jew, right, through Moses, when Gentiles who do not have law by nature do what the law requires, they are what? A law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. In other words, they too are under law. Because they do law works, naturally. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Thus, this verse is a clear warning. Again, we put this all together. To Jew and Gentile, to all mankind alike. That a day of account is coming under law. For all humanity, a day of reckoning, a day of account is coming. 
Now, hearing that, we consider one final unsaid protest that may reside here. It could. Between, and it would, it would reside if it's lurking there, between verse 19 and verse 20. And it could be articulated this way, whether they're Jew or Gentile. It could go something like this. Okay, Paul, I will grant you that. I'm going to grant you that. I'm with you, Paul. If there is a God, I might grant that I will face him and think I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. But I've been law-abiding. I've kept law. We know individuals like this, right? Think about the rich young ruler as one. Like I have done the things of the law. It's interesting. Jesus never refutes that aspect of the fact that he could do it. So the idea might be here. A Jew that says, I'm circumcised, I've kept Torah, I've participated in every festival since I left the womb. All good. So too, the Gentile could come forward and say, I have a protest, I've been moral, I've listened to my conscience, I have done good. Now friends, whatever your reason is for being here this morning, I want you to consider that for a moment. Even, this text is teaching us this, Even if that was true of you. So let's say for the sake of the argument it could be. And it was all lawful. Like even if for the Jew or for the Gentile they could stand here and say I am blameless under the law. Let's pretend it could be true. Even if you managed to do that without breaking the law. What does the text say? You'd still be guilty. And you say what? How is that possible? That's unjust. Look at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being, what? Will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Crystal clear, isn't it? The righteous Jew, the righteous Gentile, they just collapse. This is futility. First of all, this is plainly what the verse says. So we need to wrestle with that always first and foremost. It's what the verse says. Yes, regardless of your law work, you would still not be justified in his sight. And you protest why. Again, our figurative individuals here. I kept the law. Again, let's suppose that they did. It's not enough. Why? Because of your works unrighteousness. What do we mean by that? Remember, you are not righteous from the heart. You can do all the good things you want in life, but your very DNA is what? Corrupt. And if the head of the work, the origin and the source of the work, it doesn't matter how good it looks to humanity and how well it polishes and shines up, if this is corrupt, if the whole thing is corrupt, then it means your works are not righteous. They're what? Unrighteous. Remember, you are tainted with sin. Sure, for many of us, I pray, there's not blood on your hands, literally, and that's all fine. But there is sinful blood in your loins, in your DNA. It's there. Remember, that is why every single recess, crevice, and corner of your being suffers from the effects of sin. Before we even get to the fact that we're all sinners by practice, we're sinners first and foremost from the womb, what? By nature. The first human, Adam, passed that heritage on to all of us. And we'll cover that extensively in Romans 5. As such, from the womb, as David said in Psalm 51.5, we're brought forth in sin, iniquity. And the wages of all sin, whether nature or practice, is what? Death. Regardless if the one practices it, but of course we all do practice sin, don't we? We're sinners by nature, first and foremost, and it deserves death. Fellow humanity, I say this with you, to you and with you. We work in unrighteousness naturally. That's what we do. Thus, whatever work mankind does, regardless of their motivation to do it, whether it's sincere or not, whatever work you and I do can never, ever bring us into a right relationship with God. Because we're all about works unrighteousness. It cannot. Our splendid law keeping, whatever that may be tainted with sin. Practice all the law work we might, we're still sinners by nature originally. That is why we need a law worker who is not tainted with original sin, right? That would make sense. 
If there's one, if there's a human being who wasn't tainted with sin, well, now we're in business. We need one not with works unrighteousness. We need one with works righteousness. And do you know, there's only one man that could do that. One human being. One human being that could do it. One man, and he is the God-man. Jesus Christ. Fully God, totally God. Fully man, totally man. Not born in sin, Luke 1.35, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. Then a life, after that conception and birth, then a life blameless, spotless, perfect, under the law, in both nature and practice. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. As such, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We'll get there in Romans 10, verse 4. That's the argument in embryonic form here, the beginning of the letter. And listen, as we come to a close this morning, this is the reality. You are either under sin or in Christ. There's no via media. There's no kind of. There's no foot in the water, right? Foot on the shore. It's very binary. The dichotomy is clear. You are either under sin and thus so remain into eternal separation from God or you're in Christ with all the fellowship and triune fellowship that awaits eternally. There's just one of two places. There's no middle ground. To each one of us here today then, this passage just begs this of us. We can never do this enough, beloved, when we recognize our own sin. We can never do this enough. Where is your trust? What righteousness are you pegging eternity onto? And even for today, even to, we do this all the time, don't we? That I would have a better day. God, I I lived right today, so give me a better tomorrow. Repent of that. You're owed nothing. Don't peg eternity or every day to eternity on some righteousness you have. Repent. Where is your trust? Where is your hope built? That you keep law? That you're a good Christian? And that you know what? The snow was coming like crazy, but I made it to church? Whose righteousness? Whose righteousness are you clinging to into eternity? Examine yourself. As we will see next time, anything less than complete abandonment of your own works and believing in the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, anything less than that, listen, is ruin, it is misery, it is death. We'll pick it up next time. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the clear teaching of your word. Oh, how it refreshes our soul. And God, we may have eyes to see it, and a heart that desires it. But Lord, you know we do not have the hands and feet to live it. So enable us by way of your son and what he imputed to us, Lord, to go and live his righteousness, Lord, with fear and with trembling. Father, please help us. We beg and pray in Christ's name. Amen.